Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And together, we're going to explore common misconceptions surrounding the teaching of phonics. Fair to say, Chris? Yep, that's exactly what we're going to do. I'm hoping it will be useful and not merely a reading equivalent of the George Costanza family, what is it, the Festivus tradition of the airing of grievances. I hope it doesn't just become me airing grievances about phonics, but it it might be 10% that at least, but hopefully 90% useful. Excellent, looking forward to it. But first, Chris, what's you reading for? Hey, what's you reading for? Recently, I have had reason to go back to a book that was released earlier in the year. So it's my kind of second or third time of reading it. But uh, when you hear the title, you'll know that that's not too much of a challenge to reread. It's Developing Expert Teaching by Peps McRae. It's probably, what, 5,000 words long at most, um, possibly even less than that. But a, a goldmine for those who work in teacher education anyone or anyone who's interested in developing expert teachers just has a real uh, knack of taking com- complex ideas and communicating them in a um, a simple way without losing the nuance so highly recommended both if you're interested in teacher development but also if you're just um, interested in concise communication and it was for both of those reasons that I went back to the book recently but yeah highly recommended what about you Kieran what are you reading for Excellent recommendation. I mean, mine is also a book. It's by historian Tom Holland, and it's called In the Shadow of the Sword. And I, I like to see it as almost like, a, you know, there are a lot of parallels between how we like to analyze education and sort of unpick assumed truths. He's essentially doing the same thing, but with that period of history, I think possibly referred to as the Dark Ages, but perhaps incorrectly so. And essentially, you know, it, it was quite formative in terms of, you know, the Abrahamic religions and being formed and stuff. And he's really going through the uh, the sources and looking for a way to paint a picture that is reliable, I think. And it's really, really interesting. And I think, yeah, yeah, definitely anyone who's interested. I'm not sure if we actually teach much, but a lot of what we teach is fed by the particular period of history. I know, for example, that... Um... The, the 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 kind of the the period of time that's often regarded as you know the, the dark ages when we're talking about europe is obviously not so dark in other areas of the world and it's those other elements of the curriculum um or those it's those other parts of the world that are focused upon in kind of primary history but for, for obvious reasons they're not usually referred to as the dark ages yeah yeah quite the opposite sometimes yeah so definitely yeah so anyone looking to read around what the they may have experienced in school definitely check it out so this week we're going to continue in a similar vein we're going to look at perhaps some assumed truths some misinterpretations 
essentially things that we may do perhaps we don't know understand why we do but it's perhaps better if we take a different tact so i reckon if we set it up in terms of we'll outline what the the misconception is and then we'll explore each in turn and we'll see where the conversation takes us chris so we're thinking about teaching of phonics what do you think the almost like the primary misconception is and what does it mean for us in the classroom there are loads of misconceptions and i'm sure we'll explore many of them today i would say the the one that is most fundamental to the subject itself that i come across is around the purpose of phonics like what's it for and when i say that this misconception is fundamental what i mean in many ways is that as well as getting to the heart of the subject it's also a misconception that i think is unfortunately sometimes uh, promulgated by people and organizations that are considered to be uh, authority figures. And this misconception is about, yeah, what is the purpose of phonics? And the misconception in particular is the idea that um, systematic synthetic phonics programs, or in fact, any systematic phonics program is aimed at taking pupils to the point at which they are fluent readers. So the idea is you pick up pupils who have uh, the basics of spoken language, um, and you put a phonic, a systematic phonics program in place, and that phonics program is done once pupils are fluent readers, and it's not done before that point. That was uh, that's kind of the number one misconception that I'd like to address. I think I remember a conversation where you and I, I had this misconception, <laughs> and, and I remember you explaining it to me. I mean, this was a couple of years ago now. So, I mean, where do you think it comes from? What, you know, what, why did I think that? There is a tendency to try and, for good reason, to simplify what we think reading is and how it develops. Um, particularly when we want to share messages that are easy for schools, teachers, et cetera, to grasp. And so what we end up doing is saying, okay, we can basically simplify our writing system, our orthography into a set of correspondences between letters and sounds. And so if you're going to learn how to read, you need to know about those correspondences. You need to know how to use them. In other words, blend sounds together. And once you know that stuff, you can read. And that means you will be presumably a fluent reader. So there are um, these correspondences between letters and sounds. So for example, in the word chat, we might say that there are three sounds, chat. And we can say that they're being represented by the letters CH, A, and T in turn. And the, the, the idea that we can kind of then get is that, oh, okay, as long as pupils know about these correspondences, they've got them memorized, um, and they know how to use them, then they should be able to read any word fluently. Well, the first problem with that is that there are loads of these correspondences. There are some that are really common, but if you look across the entirety of the writing system, it kind of depends how you define it, but there are certainly hundreds. And firstly, there's no evidence to suggest that it's a good idea to try and teach all of them explicitly. Um, what we have fundamentally when it comes to phonics is a, an underlying purpose, which is not to teach the entirety of these correspondences. The purpose of phonics, the reason it's been designed, the reason it exists in schools is to teach pupils the most common correspondences, enough of them so that they can then begin learning to read through 
reading practice. Um, and this means that we have these misconceptions that arise where we where we simplify what we think the writing system is, we can say to ourselves, oh, okay, kids just once they've learned all these correspondences and how to use them, they'll be a fluent reader. But the reality is, of course, when a pupil goes to an unfamiliar word, let's say the first time they come across the word machine written down, it doesn't matter if they already know every grapheme, co phoneme correspondence that can possibly exist across the entire language. The first time they see that word, they are likely to say something like machine or machine. And it's only through decoding throughout the word, then correcting that, mispr that mispronunciation, um, something sometimes known as mispronunciation correction or set for variability, as we discussed previously with Dr. Danielle Kohlenbrander. It's only when they do that that they then go, oh, OK, hang on a minute. I've got this word in my vocabulary. Well, we hope they do. Got this word in my vocabulary. This is actually machine. I can now pronounce this uh, correctly. And then the second or third or fourth time they come across that word, it becomes natural. But not the first time. Just because you know perhaps the entirety of the code and you know how to use it doesn't mean that you can immediately decode that word. In short, what that means is that there is um, another massive step to be taken in order to become a fluent reader. Phonics can have completely done its job, and yet pupils can and often will be still very disfluent. There's lots of reading practice that they need to do. They need to build up this bank of words that they can recognize automatically through reading practice. So again, just to remind about the center of this misconception, some would say, okay, we need to keep teaching phon uh, through a systematic program of phonics until pupils are fluent, when the evidence that actually exists suggests, no, what we should do is we should teach systema a systematic program of phonics until pupils are accurately able to decode the majority of words they come across in a simple book, because then they're able to do the statistical learning, as Mark Seidenberg would describe it, through actual um, engagement with texts. Phonics just gets us going. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't carry on teaching phonics explicitly beyond that time to you know sensitize pupils to other parts of the writing system a bit of explicit instruction to help with spelling etc really valuable thing to do but in short the idea that systematic phonics programs need to continue until a pupil is fluent doesn't stand up to scrutiny not least because the vast majority of pupils won't be fluent until kind of late into year two or year three or year four um, by any, you know, sensible definition of the term fluency. Nice. I mean, my youngest is actually, what, maybe a third of the way through year two. And I actually see him going through this phase. You know, he's since, I don't know, maybe November, December, he started, he can decode a whole lot more and he will sit with a book now and, and, and read. So, you know, yet he has not completed you know, whatever program is in place because he's still got two thirds of the year to go and stuff like that there, you know? So like, yeah, as you're, as you're speaking, I can see that. And I can also see why I might be susceptible because I do like to generalize and simplify things down. <laughs> I think a lot of it comes down to um, arguments around explicit instruction, because in the end, it's such a inviting argument to say, okay, there's this code. So let's teach all of it. 
explicitly and then get pupils to practice applying it and then and, and that's it that's what we need to do in order to teach reading unfortunately what happens with that is that we fail to recognize that there are hundreds of thousands of words in English tens of thousands that will be in a pupil's vocabulary even just by the time they leave in year six and the idea that we would teach um, explicitly the grapheme phoneme correspondences for every single word one by one o obviously that has to be somewhat decontextualized it's, it's just it's just a non-starter what we really need is as we said before to give them give pupils the tools to, to start this much more um, efficient over the longer term process of statistical learning through experience and part of that comes down to the fact that when we teach phonics it's explicit it's hugely valuable but it's quite a slow cumbersome process it is okay i'm going to teach you this little bit and we're going to practice this little bit and then i'm going to teach you a bit more and a bit more and the scope and sequence that makes it systematic is obviously really valuable but it is a piece by piece um, affair what we want pupils to do is to get to the point where we can then get them to almost swim in language rather than a little little bit by little bit we can start to say okay now we're going to read lots of books together i'm going to get you decoding lots and lots and lots and lots of words once pupils are at the stage where you can sit them down with a book and they can decode 30 or 40 or 50 words in a minute or a couple of minutes you've got to take advantage of that pace that opportunity to kind of engage them in uh, language in a much pacier way than we can do through explicit instruction. And it's a kind of almost unfashionable way to think about things because so much of what we talk about is these are novices, so they need explicit instruction. They don't just need kind of experience. But when it comes to the teaching of reading, the reality is that yes, they need that explicit instruction, but that explicit instruction is serving the purpose of allowing them to get to the point where they can benefit from that masses of um, experience with reading. You've mentioned in the past about the, not the parallels, but almost the opposite between like Japanese, for instance, I mentioned last week, the boys were learning Japanese on Duolingo and the idea that you've got to commit a certain amount of characters to memory. And that's almost not how we, not how English works. It's, 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 would it be a syllabic language as opposed to? Yeah. So, um, Japanese operates through a couple of things. I mean, in terms of the sounds that it represents, it represents um, individual syllables using uh, symbols that are co a collection of which is called a syllabary. There are other um, elements to Japanese as well um, that represent, um, I believe, kind of morphemes kind of directly in the same way that elements of Chinese do. I, I might be, need to be corrected on that, but certainly in terms of the sounds that are represented, it is uh, on, on, a base, on the basis of syllables. Nice. I mean, I, I bring it up because I've been doing it with them just to see how they're getting on and things together. And part of it is learning, you know, there, there are three different groups of characters. And if you want a, I don't know, a real time experience of what it's like to be in that situation where you're, you know, the distinction between committing things to memory and then using them, I think, uh, yeah, it's been pretty painful and it's only really enjoyable when you start then putting those syllables and those characters together to make words. I mean, it's, it is just words. It's not the 30 or 40 words a minute that, you, you know, that, uh, you know, a language with uh, Latin characters. Is that um, how described? 
Yeah, indir indirectly, yes. Um, I mean, obviously, it's kind of Greek alphabet, then kind of translated through. It's a Greek alphabet trying to, in terms of what we use, um, an originally Greek alphabet, I believe, kind of Latinized, if you like, and it's trying to uh, portray a, German a, a primarily Germanic language. Fantastic. Is Indo-European? Is that what they call Indo-European? No. Yeah, so, yeah, all of these, so all, all of those languages, so, you know, Latin, Greek, um, the Germanic languages, all of those um, find their roots through uh, Proto-Indo-European. Um, they're all kind of connected in that sense. Right. Okay. I mean, long way of saying, if you want a first-hand experience, I reckon check that out. Um, because, yeah, a lot of what you're saying, I can see, you know, I mean, this is what I always do. Whenever you're talking about things like this, I always try to relate it back to my own experience because, you know, my own teaching of phonics and reading could have been much improved. If you were to rate this in terms of how necessary it is to avoid, you know, so say zero, you know, it doesn't really matter if it happens or not. Ten, we should definitely avoid this. Where would you rate it on that scale? I'd, I'd put it pretty high. Uh, I'd say, funnily enough, this is one of those ones that um, I don't think this is a misconception that too many individual working teachers hold. I think it's one of these ones that people who are interested in phonics, often advocates of phonics, uh, people who um, talk about reading generally, who are kind of in, in the end still quite influential for this reason. Um, it's it's those that hold that, and I would say it's in, it, it's kind of like a seven or eight on out of ten that I'd prefer it if they kind of were uh, moved away from this misconception. I mean, and the, the reasons for this are, are the problems that come about that can come about through this. So, um, one of the first things that I have seen, and and this is a common issue actually across the wider education system, but comes about because of this uh, promulgation of this misconception. It's um, pupils being in the wrong interventions. It's a really common thing to see pupils who um, are relatively, sorry, who are relatively disfluent. They're not fluent readers. And so they are automatically put into a phonics intervention. And that might be the right thing for them. There are lots of disfluent readers who do indeed have um, a lack of co um, alphabetic code knowledge, and a lack of ability to use it in terms of blending, who will benefit from phonics. But just as frequently, when we're talking about pupils in upper key stage two, key stage three and beyond, just as often, you actually look at their code knowledge and their ability to blend, it's basically fine. It's not perfect, but it's it's where you would hope a year one or year two pupil would be so that you can start them through in on this process of statistical learning through uh, reading of books. So. The first reason, as I say, this misconception is a problem, kids end up doing more of their systematic phonics program when what they actually need is reading practice. They are disfluent, but it's not because they can't decode enough individual words to get going. I'd say the second thing that comes about through this, and this is just starting to grow. So over time, I'm, I'm worried that more and more teachers will think this way. I, I found that there are teachers that say, Okay, my I've got kids in year two. They've been through the phonics program. They seem to be okay decoding individual words, but it's really slow. It's really choppy. In in effect, they're telling, they're saying, their reading's disfluent. And then their answer is then like, okay, what's gone wrong? How? Why has phonics failed this pupil? And the 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 point is that it hasn't. 
It's just that you've been like you've been sold it in the wrong way. You've been sold this really valuable thing as the full journey to reading fluency when all it's doing, all it's ever intended to um, to do is to get pupils to the point where they can begin to decode individual words for themselves so they can make that journey to fluency. So I worry that over time, this misconception as it spreads can lead to, to teachers feeling quite disillusioned with phonics because they think it's meant to do something that it doesn't. And linked to that, I think, sometimes I think this misconception is, even if it isn't explicitly stated, it's you can see it play out in the way that schools operate. So they'll have a really robust phonics program in place. It's taught really well. They're really thoughtful about making sure that it's consistently taught and that pupils who struggle are given appropriate interventions, everything that you'd want about a phonics program. And then at the end of that phonics program, kids start doing reading lessons where they're not actually decoding text, where they're not actually reading lots of text. Because you know what? They finished the phonics program. They've smashed the uh, the phonics screening check in year one, etc. Okay, now I can just read aloud to pupils because we're working on the comprehension side of things. It's like, no, most of these kids are not going to be fluent readers yet. They've not decoded lots and lots and lots of words. This process will be going on of for the entirety of their primary and I hope secondary education. This gradual accumulation of knowledge about how, how words are spelled so they can be immediately um, recognized as, as pupils come across them in text. So in short, you, you see this misconception implicitly play out in schools that have a really robust approach to phonics, want to teach pupils about comprehension and give them lots of experience with texts, but don't make sure that pupils are doing lots of decoding in their reading curriculum. And when I say decoding, of course, I also mean kind of then building meaning from those words as well. But at the heart of this fluency development is lots of active practice decoding words. And often that doesn't happen. It sounds like this is something that perhaps advocates of balanced literacy or was it whole world literacy might pick up on and use as a, I don't know, I don't want to say straw man, but some sort of a point in their argument against the use of phonics. Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Um, what you'll find is people saying, see, phonics hasn't achieved what you wanted it to achieve. It's like, well, that's partly the fault of phonics advocates saying that phonics is a way of teaching reading. And I appreciate the simplicity of that argument, but it is not that, not really. It's a way of teaching initial decoding. It's a way of getting pupils to where they need to be. So as I've said before, they can begin this journey to reading fluency. It isn't the whole shebang. Um, you see, I'd say the most fascinating way that this plays out, and this hasn't had consequences yet but i worry that it might you see this or what one of the ways that i think this misconception plays out is when people talk about um possible uh, reading assessments so often people who i hugely respect on this on these subjects will talk about the possibility of a year three phonics screening check and the idea is they say look by the end of year one or year two We've taught pupils the most common aspects of the code. What we really want to do is then to give them a, an assessment in year three or year four to check whether they've understood much more of the code, maybe the, you know, the 90% of the graphene phoneme correspondences that make up the vast majority um, of those that we see in the most common words in English. 
And the challenge with that is that it's a complete non-starter. You know, people, if you really think it through, a phonics screening check that seeks to check the less common aspects of the code is obviously not going to work. If we think about what the way that a year one phonics screening check works, the most important part of it are the pseudo words or the alien words, you know, things like yemp and zimph and this kind of stuff. And the reason that's so valuable is that you can see whether pupils have understood the bits of the code, whether they can blend them together, even when you can guarantee that they haven't seen these words before. So you can see, well, do you know those bits of the code? Can you blend them together? Perfect. It's a really sensible way to assess pupils' beginning understanding of the coding. But if you try and do that in year three or four, how would you test the less common aspects of the code? If, for example, you say, well, the letter A, we know that it can represent the sound A, but it can also represent A and A and other things. How can you put that into an alien word or a pseudo word, as we might otherwise call it, that actually tests this things? If you say, oh, I'm going to make a word blamf, B-L-A-M-F, but I want pupils to know that this A is representing the less common part of the code. I want them to say blamph or blumpf or whatever, it just doesn't work. The reason that the phonics screening check works is because we are relying on pupils to use the most common correspondences that we've taught them. As soon as you say, oh, I want to test these less common correspondences, well, why wouldn't the pupils use the more common ones in the test? And you see this issue in some words already with the year one phonics screening check. There are some words that have happened in the past kind of five, six years of phonics screening checks where you look at it and you look at the answer and you can say, well, actually, there's another answer to this that would be perfectly reasonable for pupils to say based on what they've learned about the way that English works. But it's, and it's the further along you get from that, the more of the kind of grapheme phoneme correspondences that pupils learn, the more impossible it is to say, well, I want to test these rare bits. It's just... You can't do that with pseudo words, which means you can't really do it at all. I mean, that's a pretty robust exploration of that particular misconception. What do you think the next one we should consider might be? Now, this one is a particular bugbear of mine because I think it directly leads to the sort of thing you mentioned before, where people who are advocates of um, whole word approaches or balanced literacy approaches, whatever you want to call them, are able to take some of this stuff and use it against phonics. And this misconception is the idea that we should teach pupils to decode nonsense words or th those, those, those pseudo words or sometimes known as alien words, the kind of words that pupils come across in the phonics screening check. The idea that they should play a, an important role in phonics instruction across kind of reception, year one, year two, where phonics goes there, that we should be teaching pupils to decode lots and lots of these non-existent words. Um, this is obviously a really bad idea for a whole a variety of reasons, but the central one is that it undercuts statistical learning. One of the things that we're asking pupils to do is to build up not just their knowledge of grapheme phoneme correspondences in isolation and how to blend, we're actually asking them to get a sense of how how words work. You know, if you see um, a, 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 a sound, if there's a sound at the start of a word that is 
it's unlikely to begin FF. It's much more likely to be a single F or a PH, etc. It's not likely to be FF. I think there might be the, the odd exception words coming from other languages fairly recently. But generally speaking, that's a kind of a, a statistical pattern that pupils will pick up because they're dealing with real words. Whereas when you teach with um, nonsense words or alien words, you're kind of putting false data into this system that pupils are kind of beginning to understand. So and there are some phonics programs, for example, where nonsense words aren't just like a, a brief element when we're preparing pupils for phonics screening checks, say the week before, just so they know what's going on. But instead, they make nonsense words or alien words, whatever you want to call them, central to instruction throughout kind of reception and year one. And the only reason I can think for them having done that how, is to game the system, is to make sure that as many pupils as possible pass the phonic screening check, which sounds like a good thing in isolation, except for the fact that they are getting kind of a boost in that score in a way that isn't necessarily, which is at best isn't contributing to their, um, their, their, their reading development. Now, there might be an argument, a small argument for an occasional teaching of these kind of pseudo words if we really want pupils to, fo to focus on um, use of grapheme phoneme correspondences and blending. And we're aware that pupils have already um, learned lots and lots of words by sight. And we want them to kind of go back a step. We want them to really focus on it, maybe. But as a core part of instruction for the vast majority of pupils in the room in phonics lessons, I just don't think it is anything but a waste of instructional time at best. Um, and at worst, I think is an attempt to game the phonics screening check, um, which is there to help schools recognize um, how well their pupils are doing, who needs support, and for us to recognize, you know, whether phonics is doing what we want it to do. So yeah, it's a bit of it's a bit of a shame that that misconception exists and is part and parcel of some phonics programs. It feels like this one is likely to be quite prevalent, I would imagine, you know, given the data on outcomes essentially since year two of the of the screening check. Are you going to give this a 10 in terms of we should totally avoid this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, not least because every year, like a couple of weeks before the phonics screening check, there are parents who are on Twitter saying, my kid has brought home this long list of words and they have been doing for the last six months in order to prepare for this test. And there are a number of reasons why that is bad news, not least because parents are well within their rights to say, well, what's actually going on with the teaching of reading here? Now, sometimes we will do things that um, parents might not immediately understand, you know, because, you know, we're teachers, there are aspects of pedagogy that require a bit of expertise. But there are also things that we do that aren't defensible. And I think this is one of those. I think it, it tends to give phonics a bad name. It becomes an easy way for those who are against phonics to criticise it. Um, so, yeah, I would happily see the regular teaching of um, pseudo words or alien words in phonics programmes. Um, I'd, I'd love to see that gone as a thing. Presumably, though, the programmes we use in schools have been approved 
if I'm if I remember correctly, and it's been a while. So at some point, this has gotten past the, some sort of audit of what's yep. being in, encouraged to schools. Yeah, um, you could make an argument that that suggests that the way in which these phonics programs have been accredited isn't always as well informed as it might be. That said, um, I think it's starting to kind of feel like I'm kind of criticizing around the edges when I'm really supportive of what's happened at the core. And that's probably, you know, probably a fair description of what's going on here. But at the same time, we shouldn't be so um, encamped in our views that we can't recognize weaknesses in what's going on even when it's from uh, an organization or a, a body or a group of people or an individual that we otherwise generally agree with. Yeah, I mean, because uh, I was on board with the whole approved textbook aspect, but my gut was that really there should have been one government-sponsored, you know, like other jurisdictions do, and perhaps that might be the same for phonics in terms of here's the program, follow the program, you know, and then we could draw on the best available research into how to help pupils learn to read. And so then, yeah, you remove this variability and you say, okay, here's a level playing field for everybody. And this is based on an understanding of both these misconceptions and how to avoid them. Yeah. Well, I mean, previously we had letters and sounds, but obviously that wasn't a, a complete program. It didn't have the necessary resources um, assessments, decodable texts, etc. Didn't have anything like that, but it was something that was used across the country. People, if you said letters and sounds in um, reception or key stage one, people knew what you were talking about. I think there was a fairly significant missed opportunity when all this came to pass. It would have been perfectly possible for the government to have created something centralised and said, look, this is this is the way, this is a free version. If you want to go with other routes, we're happy to, you know, accredit all of these other programs, et cetera. But here is a free, high quality version. This is your default if you don't want to pay, you know, large amounts of money to various providers. Um, but we see that play out with regards to other aspects of curriculum, et cetera. I, I understand where kind of maybe the government's coming from in terms of trying to avoid the scrutiny that was come along with you know making a decision because in the end when you make decisions and you push things you do end up with that higher level of scrutiny but yeah i i do think we're it's a slightly bizarre situation to have primary schools across the country year after year paying subscriptions or paying huge amounts of money for professional development and programs and the government to be kind of acting as a a, a, a distant arbitrator of that stuff rather than saying you know what we can give you we can make sure that there's a, a freely available high quality ver or like alternative that you can turn to now in all fairness there are some phonics providers that do provide most of their stuff if not the entirety of their stuff for free but often these aren't the ones that are particularly well organized in the way that you can find the resources on their website and yeah, it does feel a bit like a missed opportunity from the government, if I'm honest. Yeah, a number of times they just haven't gone that final step 
mm. you know, but this, yeah, they would get a lot of flack for removing the creativity from education, etc. Etc. I mean, the downside letters to signs is the 22 year old me had to go there. Here's the code, here's the sequence, fire away, you know. And luckily, I had some really, in, you know, really good colleagues who supported me in task design and stuff together, but it was not helpful at all for someone who never taught phonics before. No, absolutely. It really was not, from my experience of it as well, particularly supportive for those who were new to it, didn't know what they were doing. So again, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely happy that there are, um, that there is a requirement that there's a certain standard of phonics program that's required a certain amount of resources, support, assessments, etc. that have to be built into that. I'm just somewhat disappointed that schools across the country are paying huge amounts of money when it's all put together, huge amounts of money to what are in effect uh, private contractors. So we've had a seven or eight, we've had a 10. What's our next misconception? Well, I'm gonna start off by saying that this one is more like a, a three or a four, and you'll see why in a moment. Uh, a, mis a misconception I come across, uh, again, I've seen it in official documentation. I've seen it in bits and pieces that come out from um, groups that are associated with the DfE. It's the idea that that there's the evidence suggests that we, we should be teaching phonics for an hour a day um, by the end of reception um, and possibly quite early within reception. Now, the first thing I want to say is if you work in a school, and you are currently teaching 60 minutes of phonics a day, perhaps you break it up into two blocks of 30 minutes. Maybe it works in all sorts of different ways. Maybe some pupils are accessing 60 minutes of phonics and others less, et cetera. Then, and it's working for you. Don't, don't necessarily change anything based on what I'm saying now. But the fact that that is often like a stated aim of the DFE to say, you know, we, we want to get kids reading up to, you know, sorry, we want to get kids doing phonics for 60 minutes a day. And, you know, evidence suggests this, but it doesn't, you know, this isn't to say that we might not see down the line. There might not be um, comparison of programs, et cetera, that say, actually, you know, 60 minutes really, you know, it makes a massive difference compared to 45 or 30 minutes a day. We might see that down the line, but currently, the vast majority of um, whole class or intervention programs that have been studied, that are the reason why there is this consensus around systematic phonics, most of them are between kind of 20 and 45 minutes, you know, either per session or per day. So the idea that we could then say, well, on the basis of that, why not a bit more um, is, yeah, it, I, don't, I don't think it's ideal. It might be, as I said, really valuable to do 60 minutes. But I would say that from my experience of teaching anything with very young pupils, there are diminishing returns. So it's not the case that 60 minutes is twice as much learning as 30 minutes. Far from it. Even if you break it up across the day, it just doesn't work like that. And especially with pupils in reception, we have to be talking about opportunity cost. You know, that's something we talk about with any year group, but especially in reception where we are possibly, well, we're almost certainly looking at lots of other things that are just as, if not more important than this early reading development. We're looking at, you know, the development of 
pupils' um, ability to deal with social interactions, their ability to um, physically move comfortably through their environment. That's, in other words, their gross motor control. We're looking at their fine motor control, their communication capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have to be really careful, especially careful with the time that we then dedicate to explicit instruction, because there's really only so much of that you want pupils to have in a school day. We almost certainly want some level of explicit instruction related to elements of um, early mathematics as well. So if we're saying, oh, OK, let's have an hour on phonics. Well, presumably we also want kind of 20 minutes of story time and then we want maybe 30 minutes or whatever it might be or 20 minutes on mathematics. This stuff starts to add up. Um, so I, I worry about this idea that we must get to 60 minutes of phonics in reception, partly because I think it gives phonics a, a bit of a bad name. Um, and I think it makes people distrust the idea of evidence because I think people are within their right to say, okay, what evidence here? What is it that makes you think 60 minutes is definitely something that we should be aiming for? Um, the final thing that I think worries me about it is that where I've discussed this with some school leaders and some people who kind of agree with this statement, they often say things like, well, you know what it's like. If we say that schools should aim for 60 minutes, then that means they'll do at least 30 or 40. So there's this kind of this, this acceptance that, well, schools are never really going to take us at our word. So if we overestimate, then at least they'll do the, the amount that probably is sensible around 30, 40 minutes of uh, of, phonic, of explicit phonics per day. And I'm, I, I think over the longer term, those kind of arguments are um, really detrimental. Because if you are accepting and uh, kind of building in a certain level of distrust into your communications then over the longer term there's kind of like a, there's like a race to the bottom with that where eventually people say oh well yeah we, we know we don't need to trust what they say about this because they always exaggerate and over time it gets it's a bit like you know wage inflation over time your expectations of this overestimate overestimate sorry overestimation um are kind of built in to um what you think is going on so yeah I, i'm in short i'm not a fan of that as a recommendation on the basis of current evidence if however you know schools government whoever it might be were to say we don't think there is a robust body of evidence for this as it stands but we think it's a pretty sensible idea these are the trade-offs you know have at it i'd have i'd certainly have more um uh, respect for the for the position um, but yeah, in short, I'm, I'm, I, I think it's, it's certainly a misconception that there is strong evidence to suggest that an hour a day of phonics for four and five year olds is, you know, it's necessary. I mean, I don't think it would take long to realize in practice that it's, uh, something will be in very certain circumstances that actually does work. I mean, when, even when I'm teaching year five, I'll very rarely go beyond 40 minutes in a maths lesson and maybe bank 20 minutes for later on in the day kind of thing. Mm -hmm because I think you can get everything you want to get done within that time. And you're not, you know, cause I remember the old strategy days when we had the three part lessons and we had to have the 60 minutes for our lessons and, you know, you were either having filler or you, like you said, diminish returns. So, you know, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think, I think shorter, more impactful chunks of time, mm -hmm. you know, helps both logistically within the school day, but also I think 
with our attention spans, you know, because I mean, I'm, I'm almost certain I've read like 20 minutes is probably our max, you know, for real proper attention, you know, we should be working with it, but I don't, I don't know. I can't, I don't have the, the papers at hand to suggest that. Yeah, I, I do think, I mean, like I say, there might be schools out there that say, actually, we break this into three little 20 minute blocks. It's incredibly impactful. We know that it goes a little bit beyond, you know, what the body of evidence suggests at the moment, but it's working for us. It's not that far out of the realms of the reasonable. We're going to continue with it. I think it's, I think it's defensible. I just think the idea of um, authority figure saying, no, this is the target. This is where you need to be. Isn't yeah, it's not what I would regard currently at least as an evidence informed position. Yeah, it's it's like it's like a well a well crafted set list, you know. Start off with two big bangers, then you know, bring the tempo down, you know, maybe we're in the slow section, you know, and then ramp it back up towards the end. Well, what remains to be seen. But what would your fourth misconception be, Chris? Yeah, it's this is obviously a 10. This is obviously a it's so for for a variety of reasons, as well as being arguably the most damaging misconception, it's also possibly the most common that exists in schools. And it is the idea that kids who struggle with phonics should be taught to memorize lots and lots of whole words. In other words, people say, okay, these kids are struggling to blend or they're struggling to remember kind of code knowledge, um, relate so grapheme phoneme correspondences. What we're going to do. We're just going to start trying to teach them on a word by word basis, thousands upon thousands of words, and we'll see where we go from here. Often, frustratingly, um, things such as neurodiversity are used as a reason for oh the, the, for this. So oh this kid learns differently; they don't recognise grapheme phoneme correspondences, whatever it might be. Again, there's a an absolute dearth of evidence to suggest that we need to teach pupils. Um, in a way that doesn't align with how our writing system works because of particular individual needs. Um, but the reality is that every single fluent reader who exists will have to become expert in their understanding of and their use of grapheme phoneme correspondences. And if someone doesn't have that stuff yet or doesn't isn't at the early stages of that where they can begin to um learn more and more of these from their own reading of words if they've not got like a bank of grapheme phoneme correspondences and they can't blend they if they don't have that so they can start actually engaging with text then we really only have two options we either teach it or we hope that they work it out for themselves and the the teaching of lots and lots of individual words is effectively that second strategy. It's effectively saying, I know that you're going to have to read tens of thousands of different words in order for you to be able to be a fluent reader. Um, and I'm gonna teach you, I hope, maybe a thousand of them if we're really, really lucky and we dedicate lots of time to this. But the other 29,000, you're basically on your own when you need to work out these correspondences for, for yourself and um, fingers crossed, you know, that's in effect what we're doing there. Now, the real damage of this is that it is an instructional dead end. You teach pupils lots and lots of um, words as whole units. And what that tends to mean is when they come across a word that they haven't learned, an unfamiliar word, they try and read it in that same way. They try and see it as a whole thing. 
And often this leads to um, strategies like partial decode then guess. In other words, let's look at the first couple of letters and then I'll take a, a guess based on context. I hope it fits. And again, really damaging because it means that pupils are not decoding through the word. They're not doing that mispronunciation correction or set for variability thing that I talked about earlier with the word machine. They're not learning new patterns about the English writing system. They're just taking a guess, hope it's right, move on. And yeah, so that's obviously really problematic over the long term. Part of the reason why it's so such a strong misconception is because over the very short term, it can look really successful. If you give kids simple enough books and they learn maybe 200 or 300 of the most common words, or maybe a few more than that even, they start to be able to kind of look like they're dealing with very basic books in a decent manner. And you think, oh, okay, they've made a big step forward, they're more confident, etc. But you are basically just setting a trap for them down the line when the words get harder. You're not put, you're not helping them to develop the, the processes that will allow them to actually become a fruit a fluent reader over the longer term. Now, a little like nuance to this is that people get really evangelical about sight words, about saying to kids, look, this is the word he, when you see this, say he. Now, my preference when you're introducing words that have bits of the code that kids haven't come across yet, like when we introduce the at the very early stages of instruction, when we do that, it's, um, it's not necessarily problematic. And my preference is to say, oh, okay, so in this word, we've got and we've got a, uh, so it's the. You know, you, you kind of sensitize pupils to the idea that it's just there's a bit of code you haven't learned yet. We're going to come on to it later. For now, though, this word is the. I prefer that. But at the same time, there's no evidence to suggest it's a bad idea for pupils to learn, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 words, as it were, by sight. I, I think over the longer term, it's a much better thing to then say, oh, you know, this word that you learned, he. Well, we've learned that this letter can represent E now in some of the words we've looked at. So this is just E, he. But when it's first introduced, it isn't problematic for kids just to know that that's he and to know that this word is the, etc., etc. So, um, yeah, like I say, people get quite evangelical about sight words, of how they should be, never be taught. Again, not I wouldn't necessarily say that that's a position that's backed up by the evidence at present. But when it comes to teaching loads of words by sight, 100, 200, 300, 400, and that crucially becoming a pupil's go-to way of dealing with words, then it's obviously problematic. So it feels like the first couple of misconceptions were almost like phonics on phonics skirmishes, you know, some, uh, some scalpels have broken out in, in camp. But this is a pitched battle in the reading wars. Do you think that makes it less prevalent in classrooms? Or do you think it's ideologically built into those schools who wish to adopt an alternative strategy or have an, an alternative ideology? And does that impact on how often we're likely to see it? Honestly, when it when I work, when I go from school to school to school, I think it would be wrong to describe 
almost anything of what I see as um, ideological. It's almost always teachers saying, look, I, I want to try. This doesn't seem to be working. Logically, I imagine there to be an alternative. In fact, um, only 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, this is what we would have done. Or five years ago, um, uh, Senko from or someone working from with the local authority, whoever it might be, said, look, do this kind of teaching instead with these kids. So they're, they're well within their rights to see, to, to, to think that there are sensible alternatives. And again, this comes back partly to those other misconceptions I talked about. When phonics is portrayed inaccurately, it's sensible for people to start coming up with questions about why it isn't achieving what we expect it to achieve. Um, so I, I wouldn't say it's kind of like an, an ideological thing in schools. It's generally just, I think, a misunderstanding about what phonics is, what it's trying to achieve and what it is that underpins the development of of reading. People see reading as, oh, it's this thing that I do with books. So I look at the words and then it makes sense. And if the, your understanding of how reading develops doesn't go that far Beyond that, it's perfectly understandable if you think, well, it doesn't actually matter how pupils learn this thing, when in fact it does because it has long-term consequences. I, I say it's not ideological. I would also say that it comes down to a bit of a um, silo effect in terms of Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2. If you've only ever worked in Key Stage 1 or if you've almost only ever worked in Key Stage 1, what you see are kids struggling with phonics in some cases. And what you see is, well, if I start teaching them lots and lots and lots of whole words, in some cases, it allows them to start feeling a bit more confident, start accessing books. Great. Why would I not want to do that? And if you've then seen those kids when they get to year five year, or year four, year five, year six, and when you realize that, oh, no, they've not been building up this capability to blend. They've not been building up this um, pattern of understanding about um, the way that grapheme phoneme correspondences work within words. Then you see the problems of it and you have to go back and unpick that. I think often it would be much, it would be helped considerably if those with expertise of supporting struggling readers in key stage two were able to have conversations with those in key stage one and vice versa you know just as often you have people in key stage two if not more often in fact you have people in key stage two who have no idea about how phonics is taught in key stage one or reception in their own school so a little bit more of a, a joined up view of how reading develops how it can go in a wrong direction would be helpful but as I say, don't think it's necessarily ideological as much as people desperately trying to help pupils and them kind of working their way through misconceptions that exist around phonics. And dare I say, quite often, a lack of training about reading development, like, you know, what reading is, how it develops, why certain things that we might otherwise neglect are actually really important. I mean, that's really interesting because sometimes I will see in maths, this is how we envisage maths and there's no, not necessarily right or wrong. You know, obviously I have my preferences, but sometimes, you know, it, it can't feel like ideology has driven the decisions that are made. So it's interesting to see that that's perhaps not the case with, uh, with phonics. Yeah. What well, about I mean, your... Just to quickly say, it, it depends what we mean there as well, because so, so for example, 
people will talk about systematic phonics and they'll talk about, you know, synthetic phonics in particular. Well, the evidence that synthetic phonics is um, a superior approach to analytic phonics isn't all that robust. It seems to be the case that it, it might well be that systematic, uh, sorry, that synthetic phonics is better than other approaches. I think it's certainly the case that it's easier to organize instruction in a systematic way. If you're teaching synthetic phonics, I think it's much easier to kind of, yeah, to teach systematically, to, to build up through correspondences to see who's got off the train at certain points. Um, but that kind of evidence that, you know, you must teach, you know, synthetic phonics over, say, analytic phonics isn't quite as strong. I mean, I would consider myself an advocate of systematic synthetic phonics for the reasons I just mentioned. But what is kind of non-negotiable at the heart of this is that pupils do need, if they're going to tackle words, if they're going to tackle unfamiliar words and um, go through that kind of mispronunciation correction or set for variability that we talked about earlier, pupils are going to do this stuff. If they're going to become fluent readers through their experience of text, they have to have some understanding of the relationships between letters and sounds, and they need to be able to blend those sounds together. They, that, that's a non-negotiable. And you really need pupils to, well, ideally, to be taught that explicitly, because your other option is letting them work it out on its own, on their own, which will work sometimes, but it certainly is less likely to work for those pupils who struggle to learn to read. I can imagine the conditions it'll work, and it's normally those children who are already advantaged from the from the outset. So yeah, I, I totally see where you're coming from. What about the fifth misconception? So this one I have to be really careful with because it is, I'd say it's arguably the most nuanced of all the ones I've talked about. And this misconception is that pupils should only um, decode, so practice reading using decodable books. And they should do that only all the way up to the end of year one. And until the end of year one, pupils should not have eyes on text trying to work out what the words are and what they mean in any book that isn't decodable. And that applies to all kids. Now, this is something I've definitely seen uh, being advocated. The first thing to note is it, this really isn't an evidence-informed position. Where we kind of start talking about the value of decodable books, we are really looking at an extension of the theory of what we think. We think this is what reading is. So, and practice, explicit practice tends to be um, a useful part of teaching. And this will allow them to practice this thing that we've taught. That's the justification for decodable books. It's, there isn't that much research that actually compares programs that do and don't use decodable text. That's the first thing to note. Having said that, Based on my understanding of reading, I'm, I am an advocate of the use of decodable texts um, in, in early reading instruction. But the question is, how and to what extent do we start allowing pupils to um, practice their own reading in texts that aren't so tightly phonically controlled? So a reminder to the listener, what we mean by decodable text is a book where the, the range of grapheme phoneme correspondences has been intentionally controlled in order to make sure that the pupil is practicing what they've learned in their phonics program, rather than having to kind of take a guess at lots and lots of words. 
primarily because that makes people it builds people's kind of bad habits in guessing at words and it also can be really destructive to a pupil's confidence if every second or uh, third word they have no idea how to deal with so decodable books yes a good thing but how do we use them firstly if we're talking about like reading more generally just like sharing books um hearing books read aloud of course, from the very beginning of instruction and the very beginning of a pupil of a young person's life, ideally, kids should be engaging with all sorts of books, not just the codable books. And throughout their instruction, when it comes to sharing books, hearing books, you know, reading aloud or, or being read to by parent or carer or brother or sister, etc. But let's put that to one side. We're talking now very specifically about pupils practicing their reading when they're in charge, doing the decoding for themselves. At what point do we say, you know what, let's make that, let's try that transition from a decodable book to a relatively simple, normal book, in inverted commas, normal book. In other words, a book that's likely to have some words that pupils will have to, you know, puzzle out a little bit you know they might it might have a, a, a word like cafe and they don't they've never seen the letter e representing a before and so they have to use a little bit of this mispronunciation correction or set for variability those kind of books when do they make that transition and at the moment as i said one misconception is that all kids end of year one because, you know, that's, you know, roughly where the phonics screening check ends. Often that's where phonics programs end. And then there's this sudden transition into, in inverted commas, normal books. Now, again, I just I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that's how we should go about things. Very often, pupils, or quite often, you will find pupils um, in year one, and in some cases even earlier, who you put a normal book in front of them. And they are able to recognize the words. And when they come across unfamiliar words, they decode throughout the word, correct their mispronunciation using their vocabulary and go, oh, oh, I see this word's machine. And they move on. As soon as a kid can do that, I don't care if they're three or they're 13, whatever, they are ready for practicing their decoding in normal books. And it doesn't matter where they are at in the phonics program. Now, they can still take home decodable books as well to practice with. That can still be part of instruction, of course, can still be using decodable books in the classroom. But there is no reason for a pupil who has base, can already decode individual words and can show you that they will decode unfamiliar words by using all of the letters within that word, all of the correspondences. There's no reason for them not to begin the statistical learning that takes place with in inverted commas, normal books. Because in effect, pupils start off with decodable books and they're practicing um, grapheme phoning correspondences and blending that they've been taught in phonics. But the journey to fluency is going to require them to deal with unfamiliar words. It is going to deal with them coming across, sorry, it's going to require them to deal with words, like I mentioned earlier, like machine where they might in initially go machinet or machine or whatever it might be. It is going to require them to deal with that, use what's in their vocabulary and then go, oh, actually, it's this. 
And maybe they learn a little bit of knowledge there. They think, oh, CH. Oh, I remember from my phonics lesson. I remember that CH can also show the sound shh. And they just kind of, they yeah, they develop a little bit of their understanding of the English writing system. That is a crucial part of becoming a fluent reader. Being able to deal with unfamiliar words using what you've learned from phonics, applying what you've learned um, from phonics. And how pupils make that transition from decodable books to books in which they're required to do that is, well, first, that transition is important. It's worth monitoring. And secondly, that transition shouldn't be delayed if kids are ready for it. There's no reason to say kids should have, sh shouldn't be undertaking this statistical learning if they're already at the point where, to all intents and purposes, phonics has done the job it's um, required to do. It's fulfilled that purpose that we talked about um, as the first misconception. It feels like a lot of the steps taken by schools with regards to decodables were in response to updates to the inspection framework. Do you think the framework and, you know, it might be that there, you know, sometimes we get literal interpretations or sort of unspecific interpretations. I don't know if that's the right word, but essentially, we, we, you know, we're using this as our basis for decision-making, but we haven't got the full picture. Is there any responsibility for the framework to shoulder this misconception? I think the challenge here is, and I'm probably not going to make any friends with this, but I don't think it's very plausible, unfortunately, to expect Ofsted inspectors to necessarily always have this the this requisite understanding of early literacy that is required for them to make sensible decisions in schools. So, for example, the reason I say this is that in terms of the framework, it's not it's very rarely the case that I have schools, teachers, et cetera, re reaching out to me saying, oh, look at this in the framework. This means we should do X, Y and Z. That isn't the problem. The problem I see is people saying we've just had um, an Ofsted inspection and the person was saying that it was wrong for this pupil to um, be reading something that isn't a decodable towards the end of year one, even though we know if that when we hear that pupil read they're fine with that they can re they can hear that read aloud now this isn't that common i mean from what i'm told Ofsted inspectors tend to want to hear a pupil read aloud and if the book seems fairly well matched to them in other words they are reading it adequately then they're going to be happy i think the challenge is that as i said before it's it's quite likely to be the case that some Ofsted inspectors just don't really have a requisite understanding of, of why we might use decodables in reception in year one and why different pupils might make that transition in terms of their independent reading from decodable books to normal books at different points. Um, again, thinking back to the very first misconception, I wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if that is something that or in fact I know and I know from communications with people who have been into schools or people who have experienced people coming into schools I should say that that first misconception often comes up this idea that well hang on a minute this pupil isn't a fluent reader and so why have you got them on anything other than decodable books so 
yeah but no that's that's not how this that's not how this works that's not why we use decodable books in the first place it isn't decodable only until pupils are fluent in the same way that it isn't teach pupils using a program of systematic phonics until they're fluent um and so yeah in short i do think there is a response there's a there's a responsibility on those who seek to hold schools accountable for their reading instruction to really understand this stuff but the pessimist in me recognizes that we might never be in a situation where that expertise is going to be there um because there's just so much that an Ofsted inspector could in theory know about we could be having this argument about the use of manipulatives or we could be talking about all sorts of things it just tends to be quite high stakes when it comes to early literacy because there's such a focus on it. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was going to come back with, is that it's impossible for them to be expert, particularly when the system is geared towards secondary so much. And, you know, one of the, I mean, I've sure I've said this in the podcast before, but one of the things I always tell my teachers is that you are the expert when you're being inspected. You are, you know, we need to be able to explain, this is why I've done this. Here are the reasons why. Here's here's our basis for our decision-making. And that that's the kind of confidence that allows them to go into that and, and get the most from the experience, because... Whenever you defer to someone who has no experience but is in a position of authority, there's only, you know, really one way that can go, I think. Yeah. And again, I mean, maybe this is me playing kind of devil's advocate for Ofsted in this situation now. But the, the advice I tend to give is it's if you are a reading lead in a school and you are the ones who have actually made decisions and who are doing X, Y and Z, your responsibility is to know more than the Ofsted inspector, not just about your context, but about the the, the theory and practicalities of what it is um, that, that you are doing. And I hope that um, Ofsted inspectors are, I mean, it's very difficult to recognize when someone is um, has a level of expertise. If you don't have that expertise yourself and naturally that kind of situation leads to the possibility of people just being able to blag stuff, especially given the brevity of inspections. But in terms of covering yourself, in terms of making sure that you're making good decisions, yeah, just really knowing your stuff and being ready to to stand up to an Ofsted inspector who you think perhaps uh, might be holding a misconception is um, a sensible place to put yourself in because, yeah, it, as you say, it's impossible for inspectors to be experts in everything our responsibility is to know what we're doing to be able to defend what we're doing regardless of whether it's to Ofsted or to um, a governor who's really interested in how reading is taught to a parent who's bringing their kids around the school and wants to know this stuff for good reason we need to be ready to yeah to defend our um what we're doing and why worst case scenario the emergency valve is always well such most says and then the inspector will go, oh, yes, well, terribly sorry. Sorry to bother oh, you. I don't, I don't know about that as a, as a safety valve. Um, but uh, at the very least, uh, yeah, I'm, I, it, it's, uh, it's, it's an, again, perhaps an unfashionable thing to say right now. I imagine it is an incredibly difficult thing to go into a school and to try and work out what a school is doing, again, as an inspector or as anyone else, to go in and to say, Oh, is is the the provision of reading adequate? Is it better than that? Under such um, severe time constraints, it must be an incredibly difficult thing to uh, achieve, regardless. So, 
you know, some sympathy to anyone in any role whose job it is to work out whether literacy, early literacy provision is adequate. Yeah, well, I mean, I think sympathy is relative to the amount of self-awareness that someone has, you know, because obviously if you think you can do it, that's a different situation, isn't it? Um, oh, you know. oh, yeah. If someone turns up with a, a decent degree of humility. But again, I mean, that brings us to a challenging conversation because to what extent, I mean, open, like rhetorical question, to what extent is it professional for an Ofsted in, in, inspector in a primary school or elsewhere to own up to that level of humility, to be able to say, you know what, I, I know I know enough about reading instruction, but I don't know everything. You know, that that's the sort of thing that you, I, I imagine you can't really own up to at any point. It must be a really tricky balance to having between humility and still having to represent yourself as an authority figure in terms of the kind of the judgment that you will place on a school. I think that's a, an, a whole episode on its own, maybe one yeah. that we'll never, we'll never get to. Who knows how things might turn out in that respect. So we've got a few more, Chris. Oh, yeah. Uh, three more that I've got written down. Um, others that might bubble up as we're going along. But no, I'm pretty sure just the three, I think, is plenty um, for this Festivus. <laughs> what are we going to next? So the next one. Kids who are struggling to decode definitely need interventions that te explicitly teach grapheme, phoneme correspondences. In other words, if a kid is does actually have issues decoding individual words, what we always need to do is to um, find the place in the systematic phonics program where they are best suited and plonk them in it and do an intervention on that level. Now, in some circumstances, again, yes, this is pretty sensible. If a kid genuinely doesn't know um, aspects of the code that you think they need to know or that is part of your phonics program in order for them to begin decoding words, then of course, use your phonics program, go through it step by step. And, and of course, we want schools to use the same um, language and routines that are associated with their phonics program um, in order for pupils to have that kind of consistent um, pedagogy with this stuff. But very, very often pupils in key stage two, especially upper key stage two, and from discussions with secondary colleagues, quite often in key stage three as well, what we see are pupils whose code knowledge is fine. They've often been through lots of the of systematic phonics interventions um, and to the point where, you know, if I don't necessarily recommend this as a teaching tool, but in terms of assessment, you could get your flashcards out and say, you know, what's this? And kids say, oh, that's shh. What's this? And they say, oh, this is that's the spelling of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They, their code knowledge is grand. They're absolutely fine with their code knowledge. Quite often, that's fine, and the problem is blending. You say, okay, I've seen that you recognize these grapheme phoneme correspondences. I've put them together in a word. And let's say the word is um, stamp. And what kids will often say will be stam or stap or sam or sap. They, they, you might even hear them go s-t-a-m, sap or sta or whatever it might be. They're, it's not that they haven't recognized the grapheme phoneme correspondences. Perhaps ideally they've even recognized them quite quickly. 
But when it comes to blending them together, that's where they really struggle. And I would argue, and again, this isn't an area where I can like point to particular papers that have compared things in a randomized control trial or anything like that. From personal experience, working with pupils um, in key stage two and beyond, again and again, what I see, have seen is that actually what they require is more practice with blending. And what this comes back to is this idea that where pupils have issues with reading, rather than just going, oh, yeah, this is a decoding problem. What we need to do is to dig into it a little bit. We need to recognize, well, is this um, code knowledge? If so, yep. Yeah. You know, we need to go through, find where we want to pick up in the um, systematic systematic phonics program that the school uses. But if it isn't, if that code knowledge is basically fine and the issue is blending, then we should really identify that through assessment and then target it directly. Now, if we're lucky enough to work one-to-one -one with pupils, that might be just lots of practice reading from decodable books, lots of modeling when pupils come across a word they struggle with. If um, it might also involve something like continuous phonation where we basically scaffold blending a little bit. So in a word like, I don't know, shrimp, instead of going shrimp, we might go shrimp as we're moving our finger kind of through the word. So we're not so much, we're not kind of segmenting those individual phonemes so much. When we're first showing the word, we're kind of kind of stretching out those sounds and kind of bringing them together a little bit as a way of scaffolding this um, blending for pupils. So doing some of that with pupils. Quite often, though, what these pupils need, though, either through reading decodable books or through lots of practice of just blending and segmenting lots of words with tricky adjacent consonants like shrimp, like print, etc. What they often need is just practice blending words like that, segmenting and the spelling words like that as well. And what you find often in phonics programs uh, is that what there isn't enough of is modeling and practice of those two things. Now, that isn't necessarily like a flaw of phonics programs as such, because they're designed to teach often whole classes or relatively large groups, and they probably provide a sensible amount of practice. But for those pupils who are perhaps uh, in the bottom kind of 10 or 20 percent of those who really struggle learning to blend, they need way more practice with that. And often if we just dump them back in the phonics program, once again, there isn't necessarily lots of modeling and lots of practice on this key thing that they particularly need, which is blending and the reverse of that segmenting, which helps them to kind of embed that blending. Lots and lots of blending practice is a good idea for those pupils who struggle to blend, not necessarily lots more teaching of code knowledge. The blending aspect is almost that, you know, when you realize that people can read, you know, a bit better than disfluently, it's normally the blending that has clicked into place, certainly in my experience. Is that, and the fact that this might be quite prevalent, score highly on our our avoid scale yeah it, it, it for me it does um i'd say kind of like an eight maybe um on our relatively arbitrary scale possibly it might score higher except for the fact that it isn't an issue that affects that many pupils but amongst those pupils who really struggle with reading in key stage two and beyond actually quite a high percentage of those are affected so for those pupils that 
in terms of their literacy development, perhaps matter most to us at any given moment because they are the most likely to leave our school and able to read. Of those, I think this is a really um, prevalent issue. Again, it's worth noting, I can't point to at the moment to a particular program or a bit of research that says, look, if a kid's code knowledge is fine, but they struggle with blending, do this. There, there isn't anything I've found that I can just point to and say, oh yeah, go through these steps instead. There has to be some level of um, understanding of what blending is and then some sensible guesses about what we might do next. So for example, what I tended to do with pupils who struggle with this stuff is I would do blocked and then spaced practice of particular um, adjacent consonants. So for example, I might get them to, um, I, I would model and then get them to have a go at decoding a word like say sport and then spit and then spill and then, I don't know, Spain. And I'd go through those. So that's kind of like blocked practice of two particular adjacent consonants. Now, I wouldn't teach that as a blend. I wouldn't say, well, these two letters together are sp. I'd never do that. I'm still interested in individual phonemes, but I would be giving them that blocked practice of how those two phonemes aside, beside each other, how we co-articulate them, how it, how it goes. So when we see sp, a, n, Spain, how that S and the P kind of fit next to each other, how they sound coming out of their own mouths. So I do that perhaps with S and P and then perhaps S and L or N and T at the end of the word. And so across an intervention with lots of modeling, lots of practice, perhaps with 30 or 40 words, they've seen these consonant clusters, which is what they really struggle with often with blending these consonant sounds next to each other. They've seen them blocked. So they kind of get build a bit of confidence with them. And then towards the end of the session, we mix it up. You know, I'll bring out these words kind of one by one, or I'll say, actually, these words are going to appear in these two or three silly sentences that I've written. Let's see if we can work out what's going on in these sentences. Can we work out these words? I think a bit of blocked and then spaced practice with um, adjacent constant clusters is a sensible idea. Open to people saying, actually, Chris, there's this bunch of research papers that suggest there's a better way of doing this. Please, if you've heard about this stuff, send it my way. But the short version is kids often struggle to blend. Often the problem isn't code knowledge. So I want to target that blending. I don't want to target it through lots more modeling of that than they often get in phonics lessons. Often phonics lessons, most of the modeling is done by other pupils and done not necessarily that well. Um, but lots of modeling from the expert adult who's working with them. Lots of practice of that ideally blocked and spaced practice of particular consonant clusters and then that in context so for a lot of kids you can get away without organizing that instruction ever so carefully you can just say you know we're going to read some decodable books together because that's going to give you a lot of spaced practice of lots of this um, um of this blending that's a perfectly sensible way to do things but often particularly if you're working with a larger group just reading a decodable book together is quite a challenging thing to do to actually get all pupils actively decoding. So then kind of sets of words might be a useful part of that intervention. So I mean, that does seem really sensible. We could call it the RAMS, you know, the relatively arbitrary misconception scale. We could bring it back whenever we're exploring things like this. I like it. I like it. Yeah, that's so that one scores uh, quite highly. Like, Did I say an eight? on RAMs, because it's really important 
but it doesn't affect it you know maybe kind of five ten percent of pupils kind of fit into this bracket in my experience oh I'm going to jump in with one other misconception that I completely forgot off my list. We don't have to do a lengthy thing about this, but it comes up loads. Loads of schools will say to me um, that, oh, the Ofsted inspector was in and they wanted to know what we were doing for our bottom 20% of readers. Um, whether that's a misconception on the behalf of the Ofsted inspector or the school, I don't want to guess. But it's really important to know that when people talk about the bottom 20%, this is a rough guideline for the bottom 20% across the country that are most likely to struggle with reading. It's a very rough estimate, I would say, probably taken from things like discussions of functional, uh, functional literacy or functional illiteracy, I should say. Um, it's a very rough guideline, but also it's a national guideline. If you are working in a, a school that for some unknown reason has got, you know, a cohort of year one kids and every one of them is already a fluent reader, you do not need to talk to Ofsted about what you're doing for the bottom 20% of kids who are already, already reading, you know, crime and punishment or whatever it might be. It's a, it's a, um, a national figure it's really talking about what are you doing for those pupils who are most likely to struggle so in your school that 20 percent might be actually 30 percent of that year group or 40 percent because of the circumstances in which you work or because of just the uh, idiosyncrasies of a particular cohort if your Ofsted inspector is talking about oh but I'm interested in the 20 percent particularly you it's worth you um addressing that misconception head on and saying that well, actually that 20% is nationally, we have a greater percentage of pupils in the year group with currently talking about who struggle with reading, or we have a lower percentage than that. These are the pupils who struggle. This is how we assess the ways in which they struggle. And this is the support that we offer on the basis of that assessment. That's really what we're talking about with that 20% figure. Presumably those children who are reading crime and punishment in year one are the same three-year-olds who were ready for quote unquote normal books um, <laughs> and and were, and were moved on whether they were three or 13. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. Yeah. Anyone, anyone reading kind of reading crime and punishment uh, in five or six is probably well on the way to um, a, a midlife crisis age 12. Uh, the great existential crisis in year seven or eight. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I know what you mean. Even just taking out those children who were born from, say, what, March onwards can quite often impact on who your brackets bottom 20% are because, you know, there's a lot of development still left to go there in terms of him, in terms of reading and stuff like that there. Yeah, I, it's, it's a cliche at this point, but it's always worth taking a look at your list of interventions, list of struggling pupils, and then having a look yeah, like by birthday, like what, what, when were they born? And so often, so often it's pupils who are at the end of the academic year who are in terms of their, on average, at least in terms of their attention span, working memory development, everything, a real disadvantage relative to their peers. So this is not to say that you then go, oh, okay, this pupil doesn't need any support, doesn't need any help. You judge on the basis of, you know, what difficulties they're having and what support you can can offer them but i think it often is eye-opening to see how frequently our quote-unquote 
struggling pupils are just young. So the next one's a big one. And I read somewhere that at every moment in the day, someone somewhere in the world is making this argument online. Feels um, that way. It certainly feels that way. I've heard every version of this argument and I constantly regret the fact that I've not just written a blog that's entitled this and then just can just direct people to it because I've said the same thing over and over. And the misconception is this. Generations of people learned to read without phonics. So it's silly to think that phonics is important. Now, the first bit's kind of true. Generations of people did learn to read without um, programs of systematic synthetic phonics existing in their school. But this isn't a reason to think it's um, it's a silly idea to think that systematic synthetic phonics is an important thing in schools. Now, a few things to address here is that when people say to me, I never learned anything through phonics, they almost certainly did a bit. Phonics is ubiquitous. It's almost impossible not to um, engage in phonics in some way. If we remember that if we're just thinking about phonics, not the systematic bit, not the synthetic bit, just phonics, all we're talking about is making explicit the links between letters and sounds. So if you're reading a book with a kid and they come across the word cat and they're struggling with it and you say, oh, look, this cat while pointing at the letters, you've done some phonics. It's not systematic. It's not necessarily... Um, some uh, you know um, the way to teach phonics but it is phonics on some level you are engaging with making explicit those um, connections between letters and sounds so phonics is basically ubiquitous on some level and has been through education i imagine for as long as been uh, people have been learning to read so the first thing to note is you probably did learn a bit of phonics like those generations of people probably did get a bit of phonics it was unlikely to be systematic it was, in other words, the scope and sequence might not have been spelled out clearly, but phonics it was to some extent nonetheless. It is, of course, um, possible for people to learn these relationships between letters and sounds and how to blend without explicit instruction. Um, we know that around one to two percent of uh, pupils arrive at primary school or into reception already kind of quite capable as readers. They're sometimes described in the research as precocious readers. And when their family background and their learning opportunities are looked into, generally what's quite common with these pupils is that they've been read to a lot aloud and parents or carers, whoever looks after them, have pointed at the words as they've gone. And these pupils have basically begun to pattern spot grapheme phoneme correspondences for themselves and how to blend them together. Now, I don't think that it's only 1.5% of kids who have received this kind of input. It's just 1.5% of kids who have both received this input and been um, fortunate enough or other circumstances have been in play that have then allowed them to translate that into, oh, okay, I already know loads of the stuff that I'm about to be taught by um, a systematic synthetic phonics program. So it is possible to learn without explicit teaching, but that shouldn't surprise us. That's true with all sorts of complex things. I remember working in a play scheme 
I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before, so I apologize for the repetition, but I used to work um, uh, when I was 18, 19, 20, 21. I worked in a play scheme in the summers. And one of the things we did was we offered the chance for pupils to learn chess. We would teach them how to play chess. And some kids, they just watch other children playing chess and they'd be away and at the races. They just watch and they go, oh yeah, I know this piece moves like this, this piece moves like this. And I know, the, and they basically know the object of the game as well. Enough to get started without any explicit instruction whatsoever. Loads of kids benefited from, or absolutely needed someone to say, actually, well, this is how the game works. Um, these are the people who move first. This is the way that these pieces move. They needed explicit instruction to get going. And from my experience of teaching chess, nobody lost out from getting that explicit instruction. Even those who had already kind of worked out the basics of the game for themselves, they weren't really losing out from me saying, oh, by the way, the pawn can move, you know, two spaces forward on its first move or what. That wasn't problematic for them. But as I say, some people can just learn it, learn it from experience. The same way some people just learn to swim just by being chucked in the pool. In the same way that, you know, Bubba Watson learned to be a top level, top level golfer on his own, in his back garden with a, you know, a golf club and some wiffle balls kind of hitting him around the house. But the vast, vast, vast majority of pro golfers had golf lessons. And the vast, vast majority of people who become, you know, really excellent swimmers benefit from some kind of um, explicit instruction, some kind of swimming lessons, some kind of coaching and support. Same is true for phonics. It's absolutely the case that pupils can, in some circumstances, learn this. But our job is to make as many pupils learn this as easily as possible. And that's why phonics is um, a useful thing. And that's why it is a bit of a non sequitur to say that, well, yeah, lots of people used to learn to read without phonics. And so there's no reason for us to worry about it now. If you want, I can give you the transcript of that portion and you can turn that into a blog so that you can make a blog with that title, unless you're being facetious or... Uh, oh, I'm always being facetious. I'm always being <laughs> facetious, Kieran. I, I struggle to avoid it. But uh, no, there is... No, I, I do genuinely regret not having put that into an argument, bookmarked it, and then just linking it when people ask me directly that question, as uh, tends to happen. Or more precisely, when they um, comment on a thread that I've written about phonics saying... Oh, you're barking up the wrong tree. I never learned to read this way. I thought, okay, maybe you did, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, I should probably do that at some point. I think we've got time for one more, which will take us to nine misconceptions. This Sorry. kind of ties a lot of the previous ones together, which is um, every child is different. So we should try other ways of teaching reading. And again, there is a bit of nuance in this one, because, of course, every child is different. It's, you know, it's that old joke, you know, you're unique, just like everybody else. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, obviously that's true. But this argument always comes up in reference to phonics specifically. And it's usually people saying, look, phonics didn't work for this kid. Let's do something different. It always comes up in relation to phonics. In many ways, this kind of ties into previous misconceptions. And here we can say, you're right, kids are different. But when it comes to you know, what phonics is at heart, it's less about how we learn and more about 
the thing that we are learning. Phonics is defined through the thing we're learning, which is the relationships between letters and sounds and how to use them. All you're really saying when you say, yeah, phonics is a good idea, is that we recognize that these things exist within our writing system and that pupils need to use them in order to become fluent readers, which are things that are, as well as being relatively self-evident when you understand the basics of the writing system, they're also you know, backed by a lot of evidence. The second and the second thing is to say, generally speaking, it's better to explicitly teach something that pupils are less likely to pick up on their own. It's better, it's sensible to explicitly teach that stuff rather than just say, well, I'm going to expose pupils to it and hope that they kind of spot the patterns for themselves. As soon as you accept those two basic premises that the English writing system has at its core relationships between letters and sounds and that. It's in, in terms of making it easier for pupils to understand these things, like making them explicit by teaching them clearly, showing them modeling, giving them the chance to practice, that that's kind of a valuable thing to do. As soon as you accept those two, I think, fairly self-evident premises, it's um, difficult to argue that this shouldn't be um, this stuff shouldn't be taught to pupils. So in the end, yes, every child is different. But we want them to learn the same thing. And phonics, is, as I say, is much more about the content being taught and us making it clear to pupils than it is about any particular like method, uh, as it were, or technique for teaching. I think that has been a pretty clear thread running through each of the misconceptions. And so, yeah, I think it's a really good way to tie everything together and sort of round everything off. I know I think Neil was quite interested in being here, so it may be that we revisit some of these if he listens and has notes, because obviously, you know, lots of this is conversation within the, I don't know, is it fair to say prophonics education community? And so there may be nuances that are, are worth pulling out, but I think you've done a really good job of summarizing your position and relating it to what evidence is available and what is supposition or hunch based on your vast experience, you know, so I think be really useful and um, the plan in 2024 is to you know it's almost like year zero in terms of episode transcripts because i've got such a backlog that don't have transcripts and i'm going to say right okay from january and this will probably be the, a good one to start with episodes will have transcripts on kofi and then try and tend to the backlog as we go forward and so if anyone is interested in accessing the full transcript and that'll be available there on the day of release which i think should be the saturday before new year's eve so like the 30th of december and um, i think almost also some like any other business we've put 20 episodes on teacher tap teacher tap have got this new cpd platform and they very kindly invited us to select those that we thought were evergreen episodes um, and they said start with 20 and see where we go because i think quite a lot of our you know i think at this point we've done maybe 157 by the end of this year so it was tough choosing them so i asked lots of different people for their thoughts so yeah worth checking that out i mean i'll find out the name and i'll tweet the or maybe the link so that people can have a look because it seems like there's going to be lots of different cpd opportunities hosted via teacher tap and um, looks really cool but all i've seen so far are my entries <laughs> Just to sum up, 
the misconceptions we mentioned today, and I may not remember the one that you added in ad hoc, Chris. The aim of systematic phonics programs is to teach pupils to the point where they're fluent readers. So that's almost yep. like our, our first misconception. Yep. And the, I just, yeah, so that's our first misconception. The response to which is that's not the role of uh, phonics programs. Um, we want to teach pupils enough of the code and the uh, blending so that they can then uh, begin the process of going to reading fluency. We should teach pupils to decode nonsense words or pseudo words. Yeah, they're useful for assessment, but they are not great for instruction, not least because they might impair kind of the statistical learning that we want pupils to be doing. Evidence suggests we should teach phonics for an hour per day by the end of reception. It might be beneficial, but the research into systematic phonics programs that has been done and interventions of this sort tends to be more like 20 to 45 minutes. Kids who struggle with phonics should be taught to memorize lots of words, lots of whole words. Fine to memorize a few, or at least that seems to be what uh, there's no research to suggest otherwise. But as soon as kids are using that as their go-to way of dealing with new and unfamiliar words, then that is problematic over the longer term. Pupils should only read decodable books until the end of year one. In some circumstances, they might. But as soon as a pupil is decoding through the word and able to deal with kind of basic in inverted commas normal books then don't prevent them from doing so but manage that transition from decodable books to normal books to make sure that pupils are uh, still decoding throughout the word when they do generations of people learn to read without phonics so it's silly to think it's important phonics has always been somewhat ubiquitous Though it's true to say that lots and lots and lots of people learn to read without a systematic phonics program, but that doesn't mean that it isn't beneficial for for young readers, especially those that struggle to read. Kids who are struggling to decode need interventions that explicitly teach grapheme phoneme correspondences. In some cases, this might be true, but there are also lots of pupils who, when you assess them, show you that they're alphabetic code knowledge, their knowledge of grapheme phoneme correspondences is actually where you want it to be. And the central problem is blending. And for those pupils, that's the thing to target. Every child is different. So we should try other ways to teach reading. Obviously, it's the case that every child is different. Uh, when it comes to the, when this argument is applied, however, to kind of phonics, what we're really talking about is what we want them to learn, the uh, the content, uh, the kind of knowledge and related skills, rather than a particular technique. So when we say we should teach them without making explicit the relationships between letters and sounds, then I'd be hard pressed to say that um, that's justifiable for any pupil who doesn't yet know this stuff. And there was a bonus number nine. What was it, Chris? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the bonus number nine was about the, the um, supposed or the um, denoted bottom 20% of readers and how they should be um, specifically addressed in your school's approach to reading. Well, that the and the, the kind of that's the misconception. And the, the idea really is that that 20% is a very rough um, national figure. And so what we really want to be thinking on a school by school basis is who are struggling with reading, how are we assessing their barriers to learning 
and what we're putting in place to address those barriers to learning, whether it's 25% or 15% or whatever it might be of your current school cohort. Fantastic. Yeah, definitely lots of food for thought. And I think yeah, it deserves to be listened to by lots of teachers and school leaders. I think all set through then is to wrap up in the words of Macaulay Culkin. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. Because we're very close um, and hopefully everybody feels refreshed in time for the new term. Thank you very much for joining me, Chris. Anytime. Thanks for having me. And everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.